0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday the 28th of the 5th. Michael, how have you been?
1: I mean, what do you want, the truth, Gary, for God's sake? Move on, quickly.
0: So next week we will have an interview with Dr. Theo Boer. Uh, Bohr is an expert on euthanasia and assisted suicide. So he was on one of the regional review committees on euthanasia. Uh, He's based up in Utrecht, I think. So at the time, he's a very liberal, kind of Protestant denomination um, kind of guy. He was very much in favour of euthanasia, and then after being on the the regional review committees, he's now a, a fairly solid critic of it. So we'll have an interview with him sometime next week. We're just trying to pin down exactly when. It'll probably be less on euthanasia and more about why he changed his position on it, which is actually what I think is the interesting thing here, more than... So the debate on youth in Asia is constantly ongoing. But I'd be quite interested to see why he uh why he went from one direction to the other. Maybe it's just because he's Dutch, Michael. You know how those people are. So we're gonna talk a little bit more about the Dublin Bay South by election, because it's getting a still getting a substantial amount of media attention. I think because everyone is desperate for something that isn't COVID nineteen to talk about. And because there's only a by election, everything has to concentrate into one single election that probably doesn't have enough about it to justify this level of media coverage but it's where we are Michael. Anyway we, we will we will go through that and we'll go through the the other stuff that's happened as well and then the, a little bit on Port Marnock Golf Club and AstraZeneca but I wanted to start Michael with a, a story that I think is is going to make you quite sad. Sad? Why so? Because you're going to have to find something new to talk about at dinner parties. So the perjury bill has now been accepted.
1: No, they didn't
0: do it, didn't they? The the 2018 Perjury and Related Offences Bill has now been accepted, meaning the state, for the first time in a significant amount of uh, its existence, well, the first time, I think, pretty much ever, has a, what appears to be, Michael, from reading through the bill, it appears to have a functional perjury law. And more than that, Michael, from reading the bill there don't appear to be any obvious legal loopholes that have been written into it either deliberately or just because the people writing it were inept this appears to be a competently written bill deals explicitly with what it says it will deal with which is you know, like hens teeth at this point this didn't even accidentally ban marriage <laughs> did not even we're way above the standard operating level well, no,
1: you should say perjury has has for a long time been a common law offence in the country and there have been attempted... I would, I, I've seen people say there have been prosecutions. There have been attempted prosecutions. Now, there, there has been word, there have been whispers, Gary, that such a thing was being attempted. Um, oh, gee, back in 2017, Charlie Flanagan was doing something. There was another group doing it. I remember this because there was a there was a committee being was chaired by Michael Darcy. He was minister, junior minister for or minister of state for finance at the time, and the local TD of mine, and he was chairing a group looking at developing a perjury as a statutory a statutory offence. And I'd seen some of the language which came out in two thousand, came out in two thousand and eighteen, and then afterwards, and it looked like a. There have been many, many false dawns, Gary. So I, I missed that. I, I knew it would most eventually be coming but I had, there was no great hoo-ha or talk about it. Does this also include the legislation they're going to do about covering people uh, engaged in false making per, perjured statements in the case of false making fraudulent claims uh, for say things like insurance and compensation?
0: It's Yeah, no, it would absolutely. And that's when you're looking at the media coverage that this has gotten and the way it's been presented, nearly all of it has been positioned as um, an insurance reform bill. Nearly more than this is a functional part of a democratic society that we've ignored for a 100 years.
1: This is the way that you stop your tribunals going on for 10 years and having no results. Because now, if you go to the tribunal and you lie your arse off, they'll put you in clink. Because unless I think that unless they change them, the original proposal had up to 10 years in prison and up to 100,000 quid of a euro euro of a fine. So I think most of the people going to tribunal, Gary, would find 10 days in prison sufficiently discomforting as to preclude them from making to perjure statements. So this could potentially save the, the state billions also. Simply the fact that having an, a more honest administration rather than the less corrupt administration is very often very good for the economy. I wouldn't say always because I have my suspicions that we'll never build another house in the country unless somebody rediscovers the art of the brown envelope. But that's for another day.
0: Yeah. So uh, the, the bill lays out on summary conviction you can get a class B fine. I think a class B fine is it's currently €4,000 or imprisonment for a term not exceeding 12 months, or both, but on conviction on indictment to a fine not exceeding €100,000, or imprisonment for a term not exceeding 10 years. So the Dáil not only passed a bill on perjury, but a bill that could land someone with 10 years in prison, which might explain, Michael, why this was sold, and I would expect sold to TDs as well, as an insurance reform issue, and certainly not something that could see a TD who perhaps lied in particular circumstances spending a decade of their life in prison.
1: Well, you're not going to sell it to TDs on the basis of TDs because the the likelihood of TDs lying is so minuscule as why would you need legislation for that? Why would you bother wasting the doll's time on making legislation on for some theoretical notion that a, that a minister or a TD might like? to a tribunal or to a court. No, obviously. You're going to sell it as a practical measure. And you know what? They may even be
0: right. TDs, uh, I think we can all agree, Michael, very rarely lie. They do occasionally forget things that might be pertinent. I mean, do you happen to remember, Michael, for instance, Mihal Martin being asked about, you know, had he ever met <laughs> some developers with uh, Bertie Ahern? And uh, he, he said he'd never done it. And then they found Bertie Ahern's diary and it seemed to suggest that... They in fact had met, so they had to ask Mihal Martin. You know, go home, have a think about it. You know, sleep on it, and come back and tell us if that ever happened. Yeah, I, but you know, thing, things just slip your mind over time. Like when that, you know, if you remember Michael with Mihal Martin when that money ended up in his wife's account.
1: I wondered if that was going to come back, Gary. I did wonder. Are we getting all of the? Be- are we getting all of the? Our, uh, our our favourite hits
0: out. Well, I mean, Michael, there was no indication that anything illegal had been done at the time, as Michal Martin bumblingly explained on Morning Ireland. But I think, you know, it's, it's just important to highlight these issues so you can see the accidental things that you definitely wouldn't want a perjury law to cover.
1: There are issues like, um, oh, a currency appearing in accounts... That was supposed to be in Irish currency but it turned out it wasn't in it was in Sterling or if it was not in Sterling it was in dollars and it wasn't dollars, it was Irish it was supposed to be in. And the going home and deciding, you know what, I I don't think I'll go back I don't think I'll go back there today. I think maybe we'll 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 go elsewhere, maybe have an election instead. There are always there are always going to be the, the so put let's put it this way an encouragement for the full and frank and open uh discussion of these things is is certainly to be welcomed and also the fact that as in in just on a much smaller scale if somebody's going for uh, the old compo and this is not something new i think i might have mentioned before my my mommy i remember saying when she moved to wexford town in the 1930s there was a man known known in wexford town as the compo king we have long had this a tradition of uh, milking the corporation or the county council, or the state or the private individual for a compo and i think that i know that we've heard comments from judges uh in particular getting annoyed because they felt that it there were cases where they should be uh it should be easier to deal with uh, what it looked like the inconsistencies of the testimony of certain people that might have been agreed or suborned testimony but their, what was left open, the chances of, being, of them succeeding in being prosecuted were very small. And also this might encourage insurance companies who we know have been very slow to litigate cases because frankly the chances of winning the case were fairly small because there wasn't a much of an incentive, there was no disincentive just to get up your two hind legs and lie your arse off. And secondly, the cost of the, to the insurance company was probably going to be greater to a case. However, if they can get up there, even if they spend more money, but they can send a, a message out by getting a, a finding of perjury against somebody who ends up in clink for six months, that might help all of our car premiums or our or our public liability insurance. It could be a great help.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should give some credit here to, to Padraig O'Kadick who I think is the person who actually initially put this bill forward. And I know some groups have been pushing very hard on this and have been trying to get something, particularly in relation to insurance reform, done for for many years. I mean, I know ISMI was a a major proponent for this, and when you look at the debate on this bill, they come up pretty prominently. But now we actually have to say the government has achieved something, Michael.
1: Hooray, hooray. Now, not that it in practice makes any difference. Yes, as Gary observed, I have been talking about this, and not just myself, uh, A mutual friend of ours, Paddy Manning, uh, first brought this to my to my attention, and two thousand and nine, I think, was the first time I was actually involved in a political campaign where one of the policy platforms was the introduction of a perjury law. So here we are; it's it's only what twelve years later, and lo and behold, we have a perjury law. And actually, two thousand and seven was it was the two thousand and seven general election. It was first used as a, it was first used as a policy platform. So it's it's happened almost overnight.
0: It is interesting because we've been talking we we talk about doing this for decades. And again, this is mentioned in the in the debates about the bill when the bill was per, first before in two thousand and eighteen. Also, they were commending the speed, Michael, the bill was moving at. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an unstoppable force, and three <laughs> years later we get there. A
1: dervish of a bill. <laughs>
0: But no, it's it's a it's a technical piece of of law. It seems well written. It seems solid, but it could actually have quite wide ranging impact because it, while it's been sold mostly as an insurance measure, it's absolutely not going to stop there. So it's it's great to see come in, and um, yeah, it's just unexpected. Yes, it is. It is. It is. So it's, it's
1: congratulations all round, uh, David Stanton. Back in the day, who Paddy Gokce Michael. Darcy, Flanagan uh, John Paul Phelan who absolutely refused to listen to us and take up uh, this issue as a a pressing issue but we kept annoying about it Uh, but there you go, so lots of people have been involved
0: I know that they they previously thanked the Minister, previously thanked the regional group so you know, Cottleberry, Sean Canney uh, Fitzpatrick, Mm -hmm. Grealish uh, Verona Murphy, Nocton Shanahan and, and Tobin and also Michael Larry, which was fun. <laughs> there's a certain
1: irony to that now there is a certain a certain rich gravy like irony to
0: that there's a certain shamelessness to it that you actually have to just be like that's just you know what fine that's you you have that it is also actually slightly amusing that we will get a functioning perjury system which again widespread political and societal implications not based on the work of the human rights groups or you know the the groups looking to increase democratic transparency or any of that, but business groups who really just wanted i mean obviously I, I would say that the business groups are also interested in this aspect of it, but wanted to see insurance fraud cut down, yeah
1: basically yeah well, however, there are many ways to skin cats, not that you should be skin, not that you should skin cats. But this is, And this is one of them. And whatever way you, you you get to the end of the road, as long as you get there safe and sound, we should all be just happy. Because uh,
0: something has been done. Yeah, so just, just from that, we're talking about Portmarnock Golf Club. For those who don't know, Portmarnock Golf Club was a men's-only golf club, which has now decided to admit women. There's a couple of things about this that are interesting. One, they, they voted, and I think something like over 80% of the membership voted to go in this direction. So that's fine. You know, it's a membership group. They can do what they want. What I thought was interesting is that years ago, Port Marnock actually had a case brought against them by the, um, the Equality Association. And they had won that case. But I just, the, the fact that a case would be brought against them, because this is, I think, an ongoing debate, Michael. It's whether or not these sort of spaces are acceptable, whether or not they are, you know, if they're single sex spaces or whatever characteristic is it. Legal and legally permissible and societally permissible for any group to say, Well, we want a space just for ourselves if that doesn't impinge on the wider society. I don't know, I would generally be of, of, of the view that it's perfectly acceptable, whether it's women wanting their own space or men wanting their own space or a particular nationality having, you know, a, a Hungarian club or something. I don't think that's an issue. And I think in a, in a, if we're talking about these multicultural societies, Michael. Surely part of that is accepting that people may just want their own space for certain things. And that doesn't mean it's terribly exclusionary or that there's any fragmentation of society. It just means that sometimes people just want to be with people who share certain characteristics with them. I don't think there's anything malevolent about that. But there does seem to be this sort of that is unacceptable and must be absolutely stamped out.
1: Yeah, I I would be... I'd be more. I'd be. I would be concerned if we had. Re, if we reached a point where what was considered to be legally acceptable and what was concerned to be socially acceptable uh, were the same. Also, because the, 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 the what is derogatory in society that shouldn't really have a whole lot to do with what the, what the law is concerned about. The law should be concerned about harm and whether or not harm is being done or on on undue on interest. Once upon a time, long long ago, there was a notion that the golf club was a place. Where, oh god, you ex- middle class, middle aged white men would gather together and do deals, make each other money, and give each other power, and they would do so slightly out of the gaze of the rest of the world. It was outside the gaze certainly of working class men because to become a member of a golf club, generally speaking, you'd have to be proposed and seconded, and you? you could be blackballed or whatever. You certainly wouldn't be. Under the gaze of women, although there are very few golf clubs that never had any women in them, they mightn't have women as full members. But that is not the same as saying that there were no women in Portmarnock Golf Club. I don't know Portmarnock Golf Club. That certainly would be the case. Uh, membership wouldn't be. It wasn't be about women not playing golf. There it would be about women not being full voting members. Uh, first of all, whatever truth there might have been about that image of the golf club, that's gone. You know, the idea that the golf club is this great bastions, like once upon a time, maybe open-air Masonic Lodges or the Knights gone for a while. No, that's not true. I I don't care what people in golf clubs want to do. If they want to get together and all the men want to do their thing... There is an element here, Gary. I was talking to a couple of women about this recently. One of them, who has quite a deal of experience with men, said to me that... One of these as a society we seem to be unwilling to admit to ourselves is that there are times when men hate women and when women hate men. And it's perfectly normal for women to wish to go off and be amongst women and men to go off and be amongst men. That for thousands and thousands of years, that's the way we had organised this society. You the realm of women and the realm of men and women and men didn't spend a whole lot of time together I don't know if that's true, but I think there is an element that you know, I can understand that you know, women might want women-only spaces. As you say, Hungarians might want Hungarian-only spaces. I don't see it as a big issue of men. I also know that again, I don't know if this is a particularly big thing. I know a number of women who golfers who really never who were deeply opposed to the idea of a couple of times of golf clubs going full membership for women because. They only wanted to play two or three times a week, and they were perfectly happy with what they were playing. And they were happy also paid, paying the much reduced fees as women members rather than the full membership. And it may be that Portno. Mar- I don't know. Is Marnook struggling for members at the moment? A golf clubs are. Is it struggling for fees? Is it struggling? Is it? Is this? Are women members now going to have to pay full membership? Is this? Is this less about equality and more about? getting a few quid in, I don't know. But who cares, a question to ask you, this really is It's not a bit sad that you'd care in this day and age whether or not a group of men, a group of men wanted to have their own club, their own treehouse. If that really bothers you, does that really bother you? Why Why would you get that upset anymore about such a thing?
0: Well, people care because you know this is seen as, as a wonderful sign of, of progress. But why? Why is this progress? I mean, what? What? I'd be curious
1: to know why they voted for it. and if why is it progress anyway? Progress twenty years ago, thirty years ago, maybe. Why is it progress now? Why is it not just utterly predictable?
0: You know, it might give you you get a little you you, know, you get a good news story, and then you maybe try and do a bit of a membership drive on the basis of it. Like it's Port Marnock, though.
1: Isn't this one of the twenty best golf clubs in the world,
0: or best? golf courses in the world
1: anyway. It's ancient and famous and all that, but maybe. And golf clubs are struggling at the moment, Gary. I know a lot of golf clubs are struggling for members. You know, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it's got a bit of publicity in there. And-
0: oh, yeah, because we, we ruled that it was golf was an incredibly dangerous game that couldn't be played, despite the fact that it is entirely outdoors and doesn't tend to involve many <laughs> people. Yeah, I mean, that is just brilliant. Talk about social
1: distancing. I can guarantee you in the days when I played golf, when I was on the golf course with a friend, my, my my playing partner, if we got within shouting distance of each other, it was a good day. The idea is that you couldn't play a game of golf. And and then he came on, didn't they? And there, not just in the case of golf. Oh, well, the, the risk is people go back to you know changing rooms. To which um, one hurriedly responded, son, we haven't been in changing rooms for seven months. No one's gone into a changing room since last May. So what the hell are you talking about? Whatever it was. It was one of the more bizarre decisions to say, no, no, golf, golf is dangerous.
0: No, I, I bring this up not because I particularly care about golf, because frankly, I've always thought that the old adage that golf is just the ruination of a long walk is perfectly accurate. But it's, it's part of what we, we've been seeing stuff like this the last while, the, the destruction or the, the removal of single sex spaces. And in this instance, it seems to have been voluntary, which is obviously not an issue, particularly in women's, what would have been considered women's only spaces, Michael. There seems to be a big assault on those.
1: Yeah, but women's only spaces, I think it's less likely to be voluntary and more likely to be based on a redefinition of what it is to be a woman. And women are not, women don't seem to be that happy about that, Gary. Kelsey surprise.
0: Yeah, I was always this case was always one that really interested me, partially because it went to um, the Supreme Court, where Hardiman, by the way, Michael tore it to shit. <laughs> he seemed to take it as a personal offence. <laughs> um, but the fact that they would that they would bring a case on these grounds because it seemed obviously you have a constitutional right to freedom of association. And then, of course, it was—it was, it was just an interesting yeah, argument.
1: I suppose the question always was, yeah, you—you you could have your freedom of association; that's fine. But that in any institution that was being supported by, in any way, shape, or form, by the state or the taxpayer, should that should exclusionary or discriminatory policies be allowed to persist? And there the was a rather elaborate argument that, in some sense, Port Portmarik. Was um, was in receipt of wider societal supports and structures that meant that it shouldn't be amongst other things that it shouldn't be allowed to keep going with these discriminatory practices.
0: It's. I think it, we've we've come to a situation where discrimination, as in the broadest possible terms, is only a negative. But at its root, there, there absolutely are forms of discrimination which society is perfectly entitled to view as not worthy of support but there are other types of discrimination spending time only with people you like is a form of discrimination refusing to date people because they don't have the desired characteristics is a form of discrimination i don't think simply saying that well only this particular type of person can use this club therefore this is not just discrimination but a discrimination which we must stamp out naturally follows i don't know that there, there seems to just be an unwillingness to say that Sometimes people will want to spend time with people who have the same characteristics of them as the same interests of them. And if you bring it up, people immediately just sort of go to the issue of race and say, well, what if someone did a race, uh, did this on the basis of race? And it's always slightly interesting to me because I assume that the people putting this point to me, if someone wanted to set up sort of, you know, a club from people from the Congo, would be perfectly happy as that is, you know, perfectly acceptable and legitimate. What they actually mean is, what would have? Would you be happy if white people were to set up such a club?
1: Well, I, oh, I don't. Want to. I suppose they would say it's something to do with power and whatever. But the, the the odd thing about sort of the ethnic or racial thing is that if we if we look at patterns of migration, if you don't interfere greatly anyway with the the choices that people make about where they where they will live, they will tend to live with other people. In other words, ghettos occur naturally, spontaneously, not ghetto in the original sense of the the ghetto, which comes from, from 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 Italy. The Jewish ghettos where Jews were, were were restricted to uh, walled areas within cities, like in Rome first, and, and then in Venice. But ghetto in the, in in the later sense, in the tenements of New York, where the Italians lived with Italians in Little Italy, and the Irish lived in Queens, and the Poles lived in where the Poles lived in. European Jews lived where European Jews lived and Sephardic Jews lived where Sephardic Jews lived and so on. And that still persists to this day. It happened in London, I'm sure it's happening in Dublin, that ethnic groups will tend to live near uh, other people of the same ethnicity as themselves because it provides a sense of familiarity and safety and support. The question is whether or not when these people wish to go elsewhere you say oh no we have restricted zoning or planning or issues here, which means that people like you are not allowed to move in here. That would be, I would say, wrong. But Gary, look at the planning in Ireland today. I mean, if, you, if you're if you doing a, a large-scale housing development, there's a... There seems to be an assumption that it's important that you have a, a social mix within that.
0: It's almost like, Michael, there was, a, um, there was a case brought against the concept of local needs. Almost. Almost uh, because it, it, it's almost like that concept, which was beloved of many people in, let's say, the Green Party and things of that nature, would almost act to stop foreigners from moving into an area because they would have no you know, demonstrable links to the area stretching back to their childhood. The kind of thing that would probably end up in the European court and found to be illegal. The kind of thing, if it hadn't been beloved of the most progressive voices in Ireland, would have been decried as deeply xenophobic.
1: As recently as two months ago, I heard a uh, 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 person in rural Ireland who was a sh- who was told that uh, if they wanted to uh, get to planning, they would they could get planning, but it would have to be on a, it. would be on the basis of local needs only. And when this individual observed, but wasn't that brought to the European Court and found to be illegal, it was met with a stony silence. Um, and it asked very much, well, that's how it is here
0: anyway michael i mean luckily enough after it was found to be you know broadly awful and not legal at all we stopped doing it entirely and certainly don't now ask a variety of questions which would enable them to do something very similar but not using the same terminology and slightly less formally so it couldn't for instance be brought to the european courts this time the EU has uh, is moving ahead with its AstraZeneca case. They had their uh, first court date there, and they will be back, I think, in the first week of June uh, again. But what I thought is it's very interesting what's happening here, Michael. Yeah. So the European Court, or sorry, the the European Commission wants AstraZeneca fined if it cannot meet certain obligations. So it wants them fined, Michael, ten euro per dose per day they are behind schedule. So Politico say that they have worked it out. That would be about 200 million a day starting July 1st. AstraZeneca did this on a not-for-profit basis. Any fine they take on this is going to eat into this. And despite AstraZeneca's current issues with the EU, they are a substantial contributor to the delivery of vaccines to uh, other parts of the world, particularly places where there is quite a, you know, the third world places where there are uh, quite substantial poverty. And so for the EU to take hundreds of millions of euro from the company while they're trying to do that, I think you can make a fairly solid argument, Michael, that that is immoral on some level.
1: Yeah, it's also slightly, well, could we say ironic, that this has been announced in the same breath as we're being told, that Johnson & Johnson are going to fall Four hundred thousand short in their delivery targets for Ireland this month, but I don't hear I don't hear it yet of cases being brought against Johnson Johnson. But
0: well, we would also point out that, as we've talked about before, the AstraZeneca contract explicitly says that AstraZeneca will can you cannot bring a case against AstraZeneca for delays in supply of the vaccine or anything related to it, as long as they've met with the. ...with, the, with the, the legal requirements. The EU signed that that document. The EU agreed to that. The EU is currently trying to get that clause taken out of the contract. So the EU is trying to rewrite the contract... ...so they can slap a fine on a company acting on a not-for-profit basis. But the interesting thing here is that um, the commission spokesperson, Michael... ...said, we are not interested in the penalties. We are interested in obtaining the doses... The penalties are there to help ensure the company respects the delivery of doses. And Michael, that is the sort of cutting insight that would have been very helpful during a contract negotiation.
1: I don't know. It it seems to me that we've been reading a lot of uh, of reports around Europe of announcements being made that they are not going to be using AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca is not going to be part of their vaccination plans going forward. That orders for Pfizer, Moderna, CureVax, etc, etc are all being bumped up. Uh, on the basis that they're not going to be relying on AstraZeneca. Secondly, it's worth pointing out, as you say, Gary, AstraZeneca is, pr- is pretty well the global vaccine. It's the vaccine that's been produced uh, in partnership in India in the world's largest vaccine production facility there and in other places around the, the globe. And it's, I, it's 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 assumed, I think, even greater perf- uh, importance for poorer countries in the light of the fact that The recent results seem to suggest that, say, other alternatives for third world or developing countries, such as the Chinese vaccines, that they are not perhaps as effective as had originally been hoped.
0: The the point you made, Michael, about AstraZeneca not being used in many places in the EU or it being restricted, you might be shocked, Michael, but that did come up in the the court case, because AstraZeneca's lawyers brought it up to point out that... um, We have people here saying that they're demanding this for for doses of a vaccine that they have publicly said they will not use. But uh, AstraZeneca's general point was that, and they're right in this, the EU is trying to use the court to rewrite the contract to what the EU has decided the contract should have been with deadlines and penalties that the EU didn't put it in. Now, whether or not AstraZeneca has acted, has done everything it can, to comply or to, to supply as many doses to the EU as possible. That's a different issue. The issue here is that the contract the EU negotiated was terrible. And it was obviously terrible. And the reason the British did better out of it is because the British put penalties in and clauses and things to ensure delivery or as much delivery as they could. And the EU failed to do that. And now having realized they failed to do it, they're trying to get a court to rewrite it as if they had done it. And that's just not how law is meant to work now whether or not they can get it i don't know this is going to be an immensely political decision
1: well it's a it's it's a political decision to take the case in the first place one has to imagine that at least in part that this is motivated by a desire for the commission to to say well it wasn't our fault we didn't absolutely fuck up the purchase program and the rollout of vaccines throughout Europe. It wasn't our fault. We acted in good faith like decent people. And we were screwed over by AstraZeneca, and if it hadn't been for that, everything would have been hunky dory. So it's a way of the Commission to try and divest itself of some of the responsibility for the considerable failures of the vaccine programme in Europe in the first three or four months of uh, this year. But there you go. Who could imagine that politics would play a role rather than resp- taking responsibility?
0: The part that made me want to talk about this, and the line I loved, was a European Commission spokesperson saying, the penalties are there to help ensure the company respects the delivery of doses. Because you just, when you're trying to rewrite a contract because you failed to understand that when negotiating the contract, it's a bit of a rich statement.
1: Yeah, we're back with, we're back, we're back, back with that gravy rich irony uh, of earlier. But, you know, Gary, it's, it's the European Commission... It's not that I have terribly high expectations of their behaviour or their competence either. So I can't say that I'm lying here aghast by the whole process. We shall see. We shall see if they succeed. And will succeed see if this ever means anyone will ever again engage in a non-for-profit the global activity to provide a vaccine or similar uh, pharmaceutical help to uh, poorer countries.
0: I mean, look, the the EU within the EU, this is going to be reported on outside Britain in a way that favours the European Commission, by and large. What we have here at its core is the EU trying to rewrite a a contract because it fucked it up initially so badly it needs to be rewritten because otherwise they've no chance. In order to force a company operating on a not-for-profit basis to pay hundreds of millions to the EU if they do not meet these new stricter guidelines and something which will absolutely have to impact on vaccine delivery to uh, third-party countries
1: to ensure vaccine delivery of vaccines that they have no intention of using
0: yes and which they have publicly said themselves they will not use and countries have said that they're better off not using astrazeneca at all within the eu that strikes me as something that if reported just on a factual basis does not look terribly good for the EU. Now you can make the point that the EU is putting its own interests first, that it is doing this not because of thinks, it's just but in order to force compliance and to ensure that other vaccine manufacturers do not do anything out of line at all and to show they're serious, particularly if they negotiated the other contracts as badly. But that's not how the EU likes to present itself. If it wants to act like that, that's fair enough. There's an argument there that that is the appropriate action. But it's not the, you know, we are love, we are light, uh, way of doing things that the EU likes to put itself across as having as being fond of. This is very much just no, this is we're just gonna make you.
1: Yeah, well, Gary, I think at this stage this is if this horse isn't quite dead, it's not far from it. But the flogging will continue.
0: On the Dublin uh base south thing, Michael, there's two stories there that have developed, as I said, because I think all, every political correspondent has this to talk about, and that's it. And those two stories, neither of which I think have any real merit to them, one was in the Indo, and it was pointing out that James Gagan has a house valued at about three quarters of a million, and while he grew up in the area, in, in the constituency, Michael, he actually lives slightly outside it. I'm shocked and horrified. James Gagan replaced Kate O'Connell as the Fine candidate in the area. Yes. Kate O'Connell's sister is married to you O'Connell, who is the independence correspondent. That may be biasing a little bit of the independence coverage here. If it is doing that, that is actually quite amusing, because the last time I checked the uh, member's register of interest from when Kate O'Connell was in the Dáil, I think James Gagan has substantially less houses than she does to begin with.
1: Oh, so I mean, I think... It's reported that uh, Jake Gain lives in Tronsky and that his house is valued at seven hundred and thirty thousand. Now, listen. I'd like to live in a house uh, that was worth seven hundred and thirty thousand, particularly in Wexford, rather than Tronsky because be a rather splendid house. But you know, in the in the scheme of things, in that part of Dublin, it's nothing. It's it, this is not Shrewsbury Road money. Like it's not. I think one of the one of the papers went off, took a photograph of the kind of house that you get. It seems like a rather modest family home in in that part of south dublin also you're literally talking about a couple of miles where he lives for uh, which is from currently away from the constituency and as you say he did actually, he did grow up in it we're not again like in, the, in in the in the uk you could have people from devon representing constituencies in northumberland and living in london
0: I mean, does, it's also interesting that they only brought it up about Gagan? So, I mean, I would assume that Ivana Batchik has a very nice house.
1: Somewhere in South Dublin, I think. But where, precisely? I mean, she's a law lecturer. She practices the bar until... I don't think she still practices. I, I don't know. There was, I, on the member's interest, I think it said she had ceased practice, but I may, be, I may have misunderstood that that uh, she probably has a very nice house, and why shouldn't she? She's a professional person, a person of skill and capacities, and those capacities and skills would be uh, remunerated in such a way that she could have a nice house. So, wow, I mean, this is Dublin-based, South Kerry. I mean,
0: <laughs> people have nice houses. So, according to Ivana Bacic, website, she lives in Portobello. Oh,
1: all the I love those little houses, little Georgians. Now, you'd want two of them to make a good house, but, God, they're, they are cute. They are very... I, li- I like Portobello. Some of those little hidden areas. Dublin doesn't have many of them. Little hidden enclaves. I like Portobello. Little coffee shops, little restaurants. And nightmare for parking, but you're, what the hell.
0: The other point I would make there, Michael, is that if you have a, a house that's worth 750000 but from the pictures we've seen, is not perhaps... It's not a grand house. It's not what you'd get in, you know, the country for 750000 People were saying that this is is, is an issue because he's talking about how he wants to be the voice of a generation that is being forced out of housing. And how can he say that when he has this house? And you sort of go, I don't know, I feel if I had, you know, a 500 to, you know, 700,000 euro mortgage for a house that, as I said, is not a grand house, I might have some understandings of the difficulties that other people might have in acquiring property. You, know, you might have actually quite a fir- good first-hand example of the issues with it.
1: Absolutely, I mean, if you were shelling out that kind of money for that kind of house, and you grew up in a house where your 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 dad and mam had bought, I I have no clue where they what kind of house they grew up in, but we'll say paid thirty thousand for some kind for a, a Georgian villa somewhere in South Dublin back in the sixties. It's possible. You think God, look what they could get. That was. Three years' salary, and they could buy that. And I'm here, and I'm going to, I'm paying 15 years' salary, and to get this. These numbers obviously are completely off the top of one's head, but it's just one of those silly non stories. Um, but you have to be talking about something, Gary, as we know very well ourselves.
0: You have to be talking about something, and ideally, something which the independence is taking the choice, which is negative.
1: Well, particularly in the case of Gagan, some they have taken against Gagan in. In a in a quite remarkable
0: way. Actually, we were talking the the uh, the last episode of yeah you know, those people who would help avoid small embarrassments, not big things, but just make sure that they didn't happen in the first place, and that that's generally a sign of competence. There is a satirical Twitter account called I think Gagin's Unironed Shirt, <laughs> purely based on the fact <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> James Gagan wore a shirt in a public photo that was that wasn't ironed, and I must say, Michael, having looked at the photo, that shirt definitely was not ironed.
1: Oh, it was really, and it wasn't. It wasn't one of those nice summer linen shirts.
0: But like that, that's I think a good example. A really small thing which should have gone nowhere, but kind of doesn't look great, and then suddenly it's it's just embarrassing to you. But that's that's one thing. The other thing that's come up now is about uh, Finnafall and I, I loved the headline The Times had on this, Dublin-based South candidate Deirdre Conroy denies questioning need for maternity leave.
1: I, I thought we had... OK, uh, uh, Joanna Tuffy, who we have quoted in this before re- in relation to the number of matters, tweeted out some time ago about talking about maternity leave. Her points were four. Sure, her points are many, but she's, uh, she said, first of all, to legislate for it would be unconstitutional. Second point, TDs already get full pay if they take time off for maternity or for any reason. We don't want women with babies to disappear from decision making. And pairing rights and standing orders is the way forward to do this. So that's Joanna's, I think, eminently sensible position upon this. And, but it became this whole thing, didn't it? It was like this was striking forward for freedom, tearing down the patriarchy.
0: It's, it's been a big thing of Holly Cairns, the Social Democrat TD. She said that this you know, this is a, a barrier for TDs, and it, it's not. It's very clearly not. Whatever about its place in wider society, TDs and their employment status is actually a very interesting thing. My, my view on this, as I have said many times, is that the only impact that introducing maternity leave for politicians, or paternity leave in general actually, for politicians would do, would be to make it more easy for politicians to corruptly claim expenses that they're not due um and the reason for that is this the the i know we've talked but just to mention it again there are certain expenses that politicians can get for travel and subsistence and things like that and you you have to go to the doll a certain amount of time to claim those expenses your normal wage is paid as a td if you go in you sign the book at the start of the year saying yay i am a new td you don't never have to go into the doll again. You will get your wages. So the idea of, of giving someone time off or maternity leave or anything on the basis of their wages when they're paid anyway doesn't make sense. But in relation to those expenses, you can go in and say, I didn't turn up uh, you know, however many days because I was sick. And then you can claim these travel expenses because you were sick. And there's currently no provision for pregnancy. So if you were pregnant and you missed time, you'd have to go in and say you were sick. And they want to change it so you could go in and say I was pregnant. Yeah. My point on that would be, it's corrupt to cha- to claim travel expenses when you're not travelling, and making it, you know, just going, oh, well, now you don't need to say you're sick, it's, it's easier for you to do it, and you're less socially embarrassing, Michael, to claim the things that I don't think you should be claiming anyway. If anything, I think we clearly need to tighten restrictions on that.
1: And yet, that never occurred in any of the... It seemed massive amount of reporting about this thing that went on for a long time. Nobody ever said, Well, why are you claiming these expenses? These expenses are expenses that you're claiming on the basis that you're travelling to and from or doing X or Y. And if you're you're not doing X or Y you're not travelling from Air to B, well why are you claiming these expenses? That never seemed to come into the discussion at all. No, but you know, we it's, we it's, made
0: it's a the good choice. thing. This is a good thing, it is a progressive policy is moving in the right direction, all the right people support it. And you don't want someone coming up, Michael, and saying, it kind of looks like TDs are using the system of expenses effectively as an extension of their wage, because you know, if you increase your wage, Michael, people might complain about that, and it might be subject to oversight, where expenses are effectively a black box, where we know roughly what people are getting, but not that they're actually doing anything to deserve those expenses. And that if that were to be considered in some way corrupt, Michael, I would suggest that um, you might need to go out with a lamp to find some TDs who hadn't claimed them. That would be very embarrassing for everyone. So, you know, it's the right choice and we definitely shouldn't look too much into money TDs are claiming because that would be um, unprogressive and against women.
1: Yes, it would be undermining and uh, and sexist. Absolutely, it would be
0: internalized misogyny, Michael. That's all it would be. It is. It is also we're pointing out that these this particular type of expense that GTs can get. You're not talking about small amounts of money here.
1: Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah in, in in the most ex- yeah where you are and stuff, but in the most extreme, if you're down in like Holly is for example, if you're down in West Cork, it's a long way. If you're or you're in you're over in Ballymullen or you're up in Malin Head, this is this is many thousands of the pounds. Well, of the euros. These days, yeah, it could be. It would be over twenty thousand in the most extreme cases. But even within Dublin, the difference between uh, being, be research, sort of, shall we say, Zone One and Zone Two, is several thousand quid.
0: I mean, for let, let's look at someone who's dead now, or at least gone. Catherine Zapone.
1: <laughs> gone, not dead.
0: Well, I mean, I I can't remember the last time I thought about her, Michael. And what is death if not that?
1: Doctor Berkeley speaks
0: said that she lived over 25 kilometers away from Leinster House. Now, that would have given her, in this expense alone, 80,000 euro over five years, over the, the doll term. The problem was, is that when it went on to the AA, it actually said she was only 22 kilometers away. Now, Michael, that may seem like a small difference, but it's actually rather substantial in the amount of money that you can get paid. And also, weirdly enough, in a normal job, Michael, you cannot expense your travel to your job. But as a TD, living 25 kilometres away from Leinster House, 80,000 over five years. And when this was brought forward, and it did come up, she simply said, I'm operating within the rules, and it's the shortest practicable route. And then the story just disappeared. And every, every now and then, something like this will arise. And then it will disappear again. I would like to imagine that that's usually someone just going, "Now, lads, we, you know, it would be best you just drop to this." No one wants to like, no one needs to know how that particular sausage is made.
1: Well, in fact, we we don't need to know how any of these sausages are made because even if the case is that the sausages are good for us, like the good the perjury sausage, the process of making the sausages is always a distasteful one. Just to tie it, I suppose to tie it back up and to think is what's kind, what's ridiculous about this and slightly sad, is that a candidate for the doll should have to defend herself from expressing a perfectly reasonable position, not a, a, a position that shouldn't even really be controversial, a perfectly reasonable, honest position. But because in some way it was tainted by a perception of not being sufficiently du jour, not being sufficiently progressive, she had said, oh, no, no, I I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. I think we should get expenses for doing absolutely nothing all the time anyway. Uh, But that is is the world we inhabit, Gary. Those rabbits ain't going away.
0: Actually, looking at it, the the top race you can get, Michael, on the... uh on this travel allowance, uh-huh. as a TD, is thirty four thousand and sixty five euro untaxed on top of your uh, on top of your salary.
1: I would, I would, I would go so far to say, Gary, there are many, many people in this state who would happily work for thirty five, four thousand a year untaxed.
0: Is that more than the average industrial wage?
1: Well If you are talking net, yes.
0: I, I No, I, I think the average industrial wage went up to, like, 38,000.
1: Yeah, we were on 38,000, but that would be, that's so
0: gross. Just less than the average industrial wage in travel and accommodation allowance. If you are, now, to be fair, you have to be 360 kilometres away from the doll.
1: Yes, but you'd be living in a very lovely
0: place. That's true. And, you know, for, for that, Michael, you might buy a house somewhere. Somewhere halfway. But no, I, I I think on your point on that, it's 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 very much a non-story. The way it's presented is just denies questioning, as if this is so sacred. It's not that you argued against it; it's that you questioned it. That's actually even more
1: disturbing. I mean, if you were to actually sit down and think about that and take it more seriously, perhaps than we should, you're denied questioning, surely even. Even if you come out the other side on the right side, it's is it ever a bad idea to question something as a politician? Something like he denied questioning it. There's a slightly Maoist tinge to that, isn't there?
0: If you if you are a TD and you live twenty five to sixty kilometres away from the DAL, uh-huh. you get twenty five thousand two hundred ninety five tax free a year in this one allowance. How could you stop a woman from more easily claiming that and say you're a feminist, Michael?
1: I give up. I don't know. I don't know. I don't it
0: is know. clearly feminist to ensure that this is as easy to claim for TDs as possible. And I'm sure many people in the media who may one day hope to work as government advisers will absolutely agree with that. That this is the only progressive direction for this country. In fact, Michael, asking them, I mean, you have to turn up a 120 days a year to claim the full amount, and every day below that, you get 1% less. I mean, obviously, you can say you were sick and whatever. But even that, Michael, women are probably more likely to get sick or to have time off for sickness-related things. In fact, there should be nothing. We should just give it to them. We can trust them, Michael. I think... What we can have here, Michael. Irish politicians have shown us they can be trusted with unvouched expenses of incredibly large volume, and nothing will go wrong. Because what could go wrong?
1: Eddie, we. I imagine we'll be back here uh, uh, on Sunday, unless something inter- happens. Hopefully, something will have happened, uh, other than somebody else being discovered to have had being in possession of a nice house in South Dublin. But until then. I suppose we should wish the listener well and mind himself and herself.
0: Oh you could you can also, by the way, just a note there on front, you know, on top of the average industrial wage you're claiming in travel expenses. If you're a TD you can also claim another twenty thousand in vouched expenditure.
1: I'm gonna go away and feel resentful now. You go and have a good time. And on that note, bye bye.
0: All the best.